0: For more than five years, Deep State Radio has been on top of all the key foreign policy and national security stories impacting the world. We're grateful to our members who make all of this possible and hope that you will consider supporting our work by becoming a member. Members get access to our expanded offering of exclusive bonus content, the opportunity to participate in discussions via our member Slack community, our weekly member bonus briefs, and our DSR Daily Brief newsletter delivered to your inbox each evening at 5 pm members also receive all of our content via private member feed that you can add to your podcast app of choice join now for just five dollars per month or fifty dollars per year visit the dsrnetwork.com and select become a member and don't miss our upcoming mini-series featuring interviews with some of the key players from david's upcoming book American Resistance, The Inside Story of How the Deep State Saved the Nation. Thank you.
1: Nine, twelve, ten, twenty-eight, two, twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio. Coming to you direct from our super secret studio in the third sub basement of the Ministry of Snark in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the podcast today. Although usually our later podcast in the week focuses on American politics, since there's been such a big upheaval in British politics today, we know you wanted to hear from Ed Luce and we'll pick up on our regularly scheduled discussion about U.S. politics. But first, I wanted to uh, commiserate with you, Ed, because everybody's calling you right now because you have a British accent and not because you're actually in Britain.
2: I'm paying the accent penalty. (laughs)
1: Yes, (laughs) it's it's a (laughs) surcharge we charge to folks who come here. But uh, presumably, uh, you've been in Britain recently. You talk to people who are there every day. You were always a bit of a trust skeptic, and that's putting it mildly. You thought it would be a disaster. It's turned out to be a disaster. I saw you on Twitter immediately retweeting all of your earlier tweets saying what a disaster it would be. So first of all, I want to acknowledge that. I want to acknowledge you were ahead of this story. But I just have this inkling that the bigger disasters are yet to come. Because whatever they try to do to paper over this with a quick appointment of a new uh, Tory prime minister, are the British people gonna sit still for that? The, the fact that you know, they keep putting these people in place without a general election?
2: You know, there's all this talk of in the next week where, when they choose in a rapid process the new British prime minister, the new Tory leader, that they're gonna somehow magically come up with a unity candidate who will unite this party it's it's impossible they're not going to be able to do that because you know half the party believes that the problem with the country is that populism hasn't been tried enough that you know we've just got to really try it this time, whereas the other half of the party, whatever their views were on brexit pro um or anti you know realize that preposterous sort of Blindfolded darts playing in a drunken smoke filled pub is not a recipe for governing. And therefore, maybe we should try something else. That's not the situation where a unity candidate emerges that can please both sides. Winston Churchill once said that um, the Balkans produces more history than it can consume. That distinction now belongs to Britain. Uh, You know, it's just capturing the headlines with this. Amazing. I mean, I'm I'm going to mix metaphors here, but sort of Caligulan sort of feel of degeneration, that there is more degeneration to come. There is more preposterousness. There is more news generation to come. So Liz Truss is by no means peak absurdity. She's just another stepping stone. I've been kind of
1: shocked, even in the wake of being shocked at her resignation at kind of the all over the placeness of the analyses that we've seen. I mean, you were on one show this morning where one of the analysts, moments before you appeared, said, oh, it'd it'd probably be Jeremy Hunt. And before you were even on, Jeremy Hunt announced he wasn't in the running. But one of the things that seems most ludicrous to an outside observer would be that Boris Johnson would replace the woman who replaced him And it seems to me like, you know, this is 44 days ago that she became prime minister, that people's memories apparently do not go back 45 days. And that, in fact, he put her in place to make people miss him. It's a little bit like the pilot of the plane is unpopular with the passengers. So he lets his pet ferret fly the plane for a while. And as it's plummeting to earth, the passengers go, okay, okay, you be the pilot again, which is kind of crazy.
2: Or to extend the pet, you know, the actually very fertile sort of ground of pet analogies, this is like a goldfish party. It's like the goldfish that goes around the pole saying, oh, that's an interesting side of the pole, 30 seconds uh, after it last saw it. And Boris Johnson, Boris Johnson being the answer to this pantomime, to the markets voting very u- unanimously and very clearly against pantomime to say, no, let's just have a really big sort of blowout pantomime um, by having this person we forgot we just had. Who was the author of Liz Truss's premiership, by the way? Who was the person who um, paved the way for her, supported her, because she was the ultra Boris loyalist? The fact that she then announced a program that went directly against Boris's whole red wall, bribe the North, bribe Labour voters to vote Conservative. You know, these are minor details, because as I say, they're throwing darts blindly and seeing what sticks. And so I guess there's all these Conservative members of Parliament, two to 250 of which could lose their jobs at the next election thinking, and then, you know, the £100,000 salaries and £60,000 expenses and the status that comes with it, who are thinking, is there any Hail Mary here that might save us our jobs? And well, oh, there's Boris, there's that, guy, um, there's that guy who was the most unpopular, until this trust, unpopular, highest disapproval ratings of any British prime minister in history. Let's give him a go. Let's see what happens. You know, you never know. And after all, we haven't really tried populism. Because, you know, the Brussels has been styming us and Ramona's and the Financial Times. And, you know, people who think they know what they're talking about have been blocking us. And we just got to keep trying because we know populism works.
1: You know, I remember talking to you after the Brexit vote, and I think we both concluded at the time that it was pretty stupid. And in fact, for a long time after, there was a kind of agreement that It was one of the stupidest things that any major country had done in a long time. But, you know, it seems like the Conservative Party is testing the theory, which is, can you get stupider than Brexit? Can you do something even dumber? And, you know, I mean, this should be our Monday podcast because Rosa Brooks could be here with her thorny crown of pessimism and say, things can always get worse. But they really could get worse from here because you go get somebody in and what's going to happen next? We know what's going to happen next, right? The person's going to be under a huge amount of pressure and the British economy is going to tank. It's got 10% inflation right now. There is an energy crisis coming this winter. There is a likely recession coming fast upon the heels of all of this. It's all going to fall on the shoulders of somebody who is clearly the illegitimate third prime minister in, you know, six weeks.
2: It's funny that uh, the Financial Times headline this morning that you had to read and reread, which is EU leaders call for stability in Britain, EU leaders. So the quotes from the leader of Ireland, the Taoiseach of Ireland, the president of France, quotes from all of them calling on Britain to, to have a stable government, not tap dancing on Britain's gravestone, not sort of giving in to what I must imagine is a sort of schadenfreude about the fate that Britain has arranged for itself, but way, way more serious than that. This is no time for laughter. This is a spillover effect situation and an unstable Britain, Britain's large enough, can spill over into the European Union and cause problems. And I think one of the things on their mind that really concerns them is that if the answer incredibly with, and you'll pardon my French here, of these fucking imbeciles in the Conservative Party is Boris Johnson. If that is the answer to this situation Britain has arranged for itself, then I have no doubt whatsoever Boris Johnson's Hail Mary will be to blame Europe and to start up the whole agitation about the Northern Ireland Protocol. And this isn't a drill. This isn't a joke. It's not a sort of abstract debate. This involves peace and stability on an island for which Britain has joint responsibility. But I have no doubt, because Boris Johnson is an ethical black hole, has not got any sense of responsibility other than his own gains, his own advantage, that Europe would become, once again, a scapegoat. There's been a few days of sort of pause in that narrative. He would resume that with a vengeance. And so the instability that Britain's generating internally to levels we, we couldn't even imagine in the worst sort of recesses of, of Brexit five years ago are quite capable of being exported beyond Britain's borders. And so there's real concern there, and it's entirely merited.
1: Yeah, you could... You know, to hardly blame the EU if they go to Boris Johnson and he goes to that and things go worse in Britain, you could hardly blame the EU if their next move was to seek to widen the English Channel. I mean, the chaos that could ensue, and, and it, you know, it could actually go to the end of breaking up the UK even further. So let's wrap up on a more positive note, because this has been pretty bleak. Is there a candidate the Conservatives could put forth? Who would be a stabilizing
2: force for the last couple of weeks since Kwasi Kwarteng, the chancellor, was fired by Liz Truss, the de facto prime minister, has been Jeremy Hunt. He's a public-spirited. I mean, it sounds so absurd and rare and unusual, but he's a fairly public-spirited person. He's got some sense of responsibility. He's got a degree of competence. He would be. The one who would stabilize the markets and have a smooth glide path between now and the Conservative Party's, I think, landslide defeat at the next general election. That would be the responsible thing to do is not to leave the country in a, in a sort of irresolvable mess when the Labour government does come in. But he's got no base in the party. They're not going to vote for him. They'll be more likely to vote for Suella Braverman, the outgoing. Fired, resigned, Home Secretary, who is red meat to the reddest of carnivorous Brexiteers, and who said, you know, that what she would really like for Christmas, she did say this by the way, what she would really like for Christmas is to put refugee seekers in Britain on on a plane to Rwanda. That's the sort of degree of uh, of nastiness, to be frank, that a large part of the Conservative Party likes. She has a way larger base than Jeremy Hunt. If they were sensible, they would just say, let's have a caretaker. You know, we, we make the, you hear the term Britaly, that Britain's become Italy. Well, Italy does occasionally sort of sober up for a second and say, oh, let's have a technocrat in charge. This has got too ridiculous. Jeremy Hunt would be that person, which is why I don't see it happening.
1: Yeah, and he also said he didn't want it. I mean, I, I think what the analysis I saw suggested that he wanted to stay as chancellor. What about Rishi Sunak?
2: Yes, he could. I mean, he's sort of the Mitt Romney of this situation. He's the kind of person you, you would imagine firing you. You know, he did predict in the leadership contest over the summer that Liz Truss's plan would lead to a rise in inflation, a tanking of the pound, and a complete reversal. And he's correct. The markets, you know, forced Liz Truss to reverse and now to leave. And so, you know, he's got a, he's got a sane sort of a grasp of the empirical you know, limits of what you can do with budgets and the economy. I don't think the Tories will go for him because I think that, A, they see him as Brutus who stabbed Boris's Caesar, and B, you know, he doesn't promise magical things. The Conservatives want lots of spending, lots of tax cuts and balanced budgets. They hate inflation, but they don't want to raise interest rates. I mean, these people are not serious.
1: As a final point, you know, you mentioned darts and pub imagery earlier. Probably across Britain right now, you've got Labour Party members having, you know, a party at the local pub and saying, you know, it's just a matter of time before Prime Minister Stormer is having weekly meetings with the king. How much time?
2: Technically, they could they could stretch this out for two years. I mean, I can see why if they in their sort of most um Reptilian brains, you know, will will attempt to go for for broke now and, and not care what the long term does. And that's really been the story of the temporal trade-off of the Conservative Party the last few years is screw the future. Let's eat the cookies now. But if they were thinking, can we repair the Conservative Party? Can we retain something plausible for the long term beyond the next election? Then that might produce a very different calculation. But I don't see them as being able to make rational decisions or agree amongst each other. We're in, as I say, a sort of Caligulan degeneration right now that hasn't reached its limits. And I forget what your specific question was, because I know I had a specific answer.
1: You did. Um, You started with a specific answer. It was how long till Prime Minister
2: Starmer and you said... So if they were thinking of the national interest, then it would be soon. But if it was, well, let's keep on to our jobs as long as we can keep on to them, then it'll be two years. And then we will have two years of I mean, immense and growing frustration, uh, not just amongst Labour Party supporters, but amongst former conservatives. I mean I I think about two-thirds of conservative voters are telling pollsters they're not conservatives anymore. Everybody wants an election, except the clowns who want to prolong their period in office. And if they do that, if they stretch it the full two years we're going to have more than just sort of a drawing room drama that we've seen you know in in the confines of Westminster and Downing Street and parliament we we're, we're going to see this spill over into the streets something has to give so i pray there will be a general election and that this period of madness can be finally brought to an end but i don't trust the conservatives to be that self-knowing or responsible it's quite capable that this drama is that Britain's going to continue to produce more history than it can consume for another two years.
1: Uh, It's tempting looking at all of this because there's a certain comic quality of it to think that now is the time for a revival of Yes Minister via Blackadder with a touch of spitting image, but it could actually be very bad for a lot of people. The pain that is going to be experienced by millions and millions of people in the UK is going to be quite
2: substantial. I would rename it, yes, minstrel, because I think, you know, this is the court jester politics. The pain is real. I mean, you know, this, this, this isn't abstract. The cost in terms of medium wages going down in real terms, just consistently, Britain's the only economy in the G7 that hasn't yet regained its pre-pandemic level. Uh, everyone else has. And it's actually moving further away now because we're going into recession. And the frustration is going to start spilling over. I mean, you know, British people were promised one thing, and they're not just getting further away from it the more time goes on. This is all happening internally in 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 the Conservative Party, the authors of Britain's misfortune.
1: Very grim. We're very fortunate to be able to discuss it with you here. Thank you very much for joining us and uh, be well, Ed. And we'll be right back with the next segment from today's pod. If you like Deep State Radio, you'll want to check out World Review with Evo Dalder from the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Each week, our friend Evo, former U.S. ambassador to NATO, talks with some of the world's leading reporters and commentators from the Financial Times, Washington Post, New York Times, Politico, and Axios, to name just a few. Evo and a rotating panel of journalists offer in-depth analyses and diverse perspectives on the week's most important emerging global news stories and why they matter. If you are hungry for more context on world events making headlines, and you're here listening to Deep State Radio, so we think you probably are, you might want to subscribe to World Review with Evo Dalter wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch a live recording of World Review every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Central at globalaffairs.org. We are now going to turn to the normal focus of our podcast, particularly since we've shifted it a week ago and redirected this podcast to the campaign. And so I am joined by one of my co-hosts for this New campaign focused version of the podcast, Simon Rosenberg. Simon's the president of Indiana and the New Policy Institute. Tara McGowan, our other co host, is unable to join us today, but we are um, having in her place Tom Bonnier, who is a veteran Democratic political strategist and Target Smart's chief executive officer. And because Tom's work is well known to Simon, and Simon was Super excited about having Tom on. I thought it would be good for Simon to explain why he was super excited, and maybe offer the first question to Tom.
3: Sure. Well, first of all, Tom's a great guy, and we've gotten to know each other in recent years, and um, really a pleasure to be able to bring him on today. The most important thing I can say is that you know our elections have changed in the United States. We now have much more early voting and vote by mail, so elections now go on for weeks and not just days. And that means we have a whole, for all of us data geeks and people who want to learn about elections, we have a whole new set of data that we can focus on every day. And we'll talk a little bit after uh, Tom speaks about why this is so interesting and important. But, you know, we have Tom has developed his data firm has put out a site called Target Early, which every day takes all the early vote and vote by mail data and puts it into a single really easy to use site. For us to get a better sense of what's happening now in this new kind of election where we have voting going on for weeks and not days. And so, Tom, thanks so much for being here. I know that you launched the site today. Tell us a little bit about the site and some of perhaps some of your top line takeaways of what you're seeing in the actual data.
4: Thank you both for having me here. I'm um, excited to join you all, albeit from my car. But yeah, the site, as you said, target early. It's something we've been doing for a few cycles now, but I think we're really hitting our stride this cycle, especially just as you say, like, you know, the elections, we're so used to thinking about elections as something where we're all counting down to election day. And now it's like, we're counting down to when you can't vote anymore. But in reality, at this point, millions of Americans have voted already. We're at the point now where more than a million votes are being cast every day. And so what we do is we take all that data, our team at TargetSmart goes and we collect those votes. Important to note for people, because for some reason, people are still confused by this. They think maybe that we know who they voted for. We don't get to see that. But state and local election officials will flag when someone votes early or on election day. They create files of that. We collect that data. We bring it back in. We match it to our existing national file of all voters. And so it allows us to have a really granular sense of who's voting, which in the end gives us a sense, you know, the big question that we all have, everyone wants to know who's going to win. Well, we're not going to be able to answer that. But when we look at the polls, when we consider what could happen in this election, the biggest question is always going to be turnout. It's going to be which side shows up, especially in this election, which I'm thinking of is sort of a dual wave election, right? We know that Republican intensity was going to be there because this is a midterm election and everything that I think everyone is probably aware of that would favor Republicans. And there was a big question about whether or not Democrats could match that intensity and really break the historic trend for midterm elections. And so to your question, what we're seeing so far, you know, now where we've got about 5 million votes cast, give or take already, I think the first question we can answer, you know, someone asked me, well, this looks good, right? So it's good for Democrats. And I said, well, it doesn't look bad. I can tell you that, that we can check this box, that if anyone thought for a moment that this would be a quote, regular midterm election, where uh, the party in power generally demoralized, not really motivated to come out, that's not going to happen. Democrats are clearly motivated. There's still an open question as to exactly, you know, how motivated, but all the signs in the early vote so far are pointing to high level of intensity and engagement among Democratic voters, levels well above 2018. I mean, it's important to remember 2018 set a record. There's over a century. That the next highest turnout for a midterm election, I think, was in 1914. And I could be wrong, but over a hundred years before, 2018 was a very high turnout election. And we're seeing indicators in the early vote now that. Turnout very well may exceed that benchmark.
1: Simon, when I listen to what Tom just said, I hear what I'm hearing from a lot of Democrats, which is this could be okay, but there's no clear signs it's okay. It might not be okay. And so my natural instinct, which, and remember, my dad called me Eeyore when I was a kid growing up. So this is my natural instinct is. Well, if he's not saying it's gonna be great, then it's not gonna be great, the skies fall. What's your reaction, Simon? And then Tom, um, and and as you can see, these podcasts really end up being just a form of therapy for me.
3: <laughs> well, listen, I, I think to add to what Tom said, I think the the biggest unknown to me in this election is that the high turnout that we saw, of Democrats, the overperformance, as we call it in political English that we saw in the five House special elections after Roe ended and in Kansas, was that a harbinger? Was that a sign of something really elevated, or was it a set of outliers and unique experiences? And the truth is we don't know. and but what matters in our business more, whether you look at polling or elections and people voting, voting matters more. It's more important information. And so, yes, there's an enormous amount of data and polling. There's been too much polling. A lot of it's been really crappy. We're all getting confused and beaten up by it. But the most important data to me about this election so far have been these actual votes in, in the House races. And remember, in New York 19, which was a race that we won that we weren't supposed to win, our polling had us down three to four points on election day. And we won that race by two and a half points. And even the DCCC was shocked and surprised that their polling underestimated the Democratic vote by almost six points, right, which is a crazy number in our business. So we don't really know what's going to happen in this election. And what is true is that the pollsters don't get to decide, the people get to decide, right? They're the ones who are in charge. And I will tell you that I think what we're seeing so far is very encouraging, because as we've seen in Georgia, You know, we're seeing general election level turnout now over three days, record level numbers out of a general election, not of a midterm election, over three consecutive days. It's almost statistically impossible, the kind of turnout that we're seeing here. And David, for all that you care about, for our democracy, for liberal, you know, the West prevailing in this battle that we're in, just to see so many people voting is just an affirmation of the integrity and strength of our democracy and something we should be celebrating. But the other thing it does, and I think this is the big unknown in this election, too. My other question is that, you know, I have this belief that we're about to find out that one of the reasons we've had such high turnout in the last two elections is because of the early vote. And that people see other people voting and it creates this social pressure on people to then go vote. And if you're marginally like, I don't really care, you know, this isn't that important to me. I don't have a candidate I really like. But then you see all these people voting, you're like, well, I guess I got to go vote. Right. If that happens and that, process kicks in, which is based on social science and the way that people vote, that really benefits us (laughs) because we have a much higher percentage of irregular voters in our party than they do. And so if there's this bandwagon effect, this is why I think this kind of early vote, vote by mail stuff, may actually structurally benefit Democrats because it means that the pressure on people to go from being, I don't know, to voting is increased at a structural level, which is structurally beneficial to us. So that's why I'm so encouraged by what I'm seeing now. And as Tom, I think Tom is always very careful in his in his analysis, but let's just be clear about what we see today, that the electorate today in the early vote of the 5 million is more democratic at this point than it was in 2018 and 2020. And in 2020, we won the election by four and a half points. So let's, my interpretation, what Tom was saying, and he's always gonna be more careful than I am, is that I'm really excited about what I'm seeing Because certainly we would rather see the data being higher than 2020 than lower. And so, you know, it is an affirmation that we may actually, you know, that this is going to be a very competitive election. That's all. I mean, we're going to have a very competitive election. So, Tom, I mean, what, I don't know, Just if you want to just weigh in on any of the stuff that I just put on the table, because again, I just want to reiterate to everybody, this is a new whole system that we're operating under. It's still, we're still just getting used to. And I do think that one of the things that's happening is that people are starting to get used to voting early and they're doing it more, right? Like it's becoming a habit and a pattern rather than something that was kind of exotic that happened a few years ago.
4: A couple of things on this. I think first, to David's point about the, the, the Eeyore reaction, I think we all earned that, right? We've lived through 2016 and 2020 where there were expectations by polls, expectations from early data that perhaps weren't met. But I think we've also learned a lot from that. And we're a lot smarter about that. I do think you're seeing a phenomenon right now where there's sort of a double accounting for this, right? There's the pollsters who seem to be creating likely voter models that are erring on the side of caution and saying, well, look, we've had this pro-democratic bias in polls in 2020 and 2016, so let's create more conservative likely voter models. And I've had pollsters, you know, even Democratic partisan pollsters tell me they're doing that. And I understand that. But then also in our assessment and analysis of this data, whether it's the early vote data or the polls, we're doing that, too. There's a reason why in Ohio and that Senate race, when you look at the average, the poll average on 538, Vance is up. Vance, the Republican, is up by less than a point, right? Whereas in Pennsylvania, Fetterman, the Democrat, is up in the average polls by more than five points in the poll average. Yet there's all this talk about Pennsylvania and how tight it is and how it's better than blowing it, might Oz win. And there's not the same sort of talk. So we're sort of mentally adjusting polls that have already been adjusted to the right. And so I think that's important to keep in mind. And Simon, your point about the early voting, I couldn't agree with more. You know, in the end, there's maybe a little bit less than half of eligible Americans who will just vote habitually, right? And we set them aside and you look at the other half of Americans And there's sort of two things that have to be present for them to vote. One is just the ease of access. You know, how easy is it for them to vote? And this early voting has made it so much easier. And as you know, it's made it tactically easier for campaigns to be able to, you don't just have one bite at the apple on election day. You can go one day and the next day and the next day and keep going. And Simon, you've made this point very well, very effectively. But for those who care about this sort of thing and helping campaigns vote early, get off the list, let them focus the resources, it creates an efficiency. And then the other factor that has to be in place for someone to vote is they need to see a connection between that action and something they care about. And that's why we've seen this post-Dobbs, so many people coming out to vote in those special elections you talked about, the Kansas election, and why we're seeing this increase, I believe, in the early vote is because people are seeing the connection. Between them voting and Lindsey Graham, God bless him, he he introduced last month that federal abortion ban that made it clear that if you don't vote for Democratic candidates for Congress, you're risking a a federal ban. And I think that is certainly motivating voters. In the end, I, I do think, you know, 2020, the one effect that we have to pull out is the pandemic. Some states have made it harder to vote early or diminished the hours or days of that. I do think you'll see fewer people voting early but there's a, than we did in 2020 as a share of the electorate. But in the end, what that's going to translate into is more younger voters voting on election day. You know, There are a lot of younger voters who voted early in 2020 who I think are going to wait till election day. And that's fine. They'll come out. Everything we're seeing is that young voters are very much engaged.
3: And David, if I could just jump in with one other data point to make you feel better, is that the largest likely voter poll of the week was done by Morning Consult. And it had thousands of interviews, By far and away the biggest of all the various polls that came out. They had Democrats up three points, but most importantly, they had on the measures of vote intensity, they had Democrats at five points more likely, you know, it was five points greater intensity than Republicans. And the number was rising and it was the highest of the year. And so as we get closer to election, people are voting, right, the best poll of the week, the most, the most statistically accurate poll of the week, showed rising Democratic intensity and higher than Republicans. If our vote intensity is higher than the Republicans, given that we have more voters, we're going to win the midterms. I mean, this is the critical thing here. There's, a basic, there's basic math here, which is that we have more voters. We won the last two elections by six points. So our goal, we don't have to pick up a single new voter to have successful midterms. They do. And so we just got to turn out these people that voted in 2018, 2020. These kinds of vote intensity things have to be terrifying for Republicans. Republicans cannot be happy about what they're seeing in Georgia right now. The numbers are astronomical. And if this starts replicating in other states as we start to see the early vote kick in, so for example, in Nevada this weekend, it begins, it really starts kicking in now. We could be talking about a very different election in a few days than what is the conventional chatter in, in, in cable news right now.
1: So you you can see, Tom, why I I wanted to set up this podcast like this, because Simon does sort of lift me up each week. He's the chairman of the board of the glasses half full. (laughs) Now, Having having said that, Tom, we, we only got a couple minutes left, but thank you, by the way, in the midst of your busy schedule. But you're an itinerant consultant, an itinerant data analyst traveling around talking to campaigns right now. What's the advice you're giving to them? based
4: on what you're seeing? Yeah, well, I'd say the one thing that I find myself repeating a lot is expand your universes. So campaigns can sometimes be too targeted and too focused, which is weird as a data guy to say that because usually we're talking about how we can hyper-target voters. But in the end, because of everything we've been talking about, you know, a lot of times campaigns don't spend a lot of resources in midterm elections to communicate with younger voters or new registrants we've got these vote propensity scores where we assign a probability of every voter voting. And they look at the people, of, you know, maybe a 50% chance or higher, maybe 40%. And I'm telling them widen the aperture, go much further down those scales. Those people who maybe we used to think were 50, 50 before Dobbs, those are people who are coming out to vote. And we need to start looking at those voters who maybe are going to vote for the first time. This might be their first time voting in their life. And there's a compelling reason to do it. So, you know, that's the one thing that I find myself repeating is, is get out there. And also just don't make the assumption that voters are connecting the dots on choice at this point, because we have seen the difference. I mentioned this elsewhere earlier today, but you look at the Kansas election that happened on August 2nd, and then not far away in Tennessee, they had their primary two days late, And in Kansas, they were voting on a constitutional amendment to protect choice in their state constitution, and they had a 40-point gender gap in voter registration, and they had a 12-point gender gap in turnout. Neither of those have ever happened in Kansas. Tennessee, it was just a regular primary. Voters didn't feel like their vote had any connection to the issue of choice, and there was no change in the gender gap from the previous primary. Campaigns need to make that connection in this closing argument, yes, we need to talk about the economy. Every election is about the economy. But we need to take advantage of this opportunity that has been given to us and make sure that voters see that connection. And I find myself repeating myself on that a lot, too, uh, especially in the past week or so.
1: Well, I know that if Tara McGowan were here, she would point out to everybody who's listening that they have a platform on social media. They have an opportunity to take that message and deliver it themselves. And if it goes to 30 people or 300 or 3,000 or 30,000, it has an impact. And so we're all in a different position. It's not just early voting. We actually all have a means to ensure that this discussion and the narrative around it is not the one that's being set by the Republicans or by the media. It can be the ones that need, that need to be set by us. I, I'm so grateful you could spend these 20 minutes with us. Hopefully, maybe you can come back a little bit later, help us understand what's happening or what's happened. And uh, in the meantime, seeing you sitting there in your car, drive safely, Tom.
4: I will. Thanks so much for having me. I'd love to come back.
1: So this is the point in our podcast where we say thanks to everybody who's joining us from the general public. And um, we hope that you will see the value in these things. and imagine the value that's in our bonus content. Uh, We're about to go and have a discussion about the things that voters can do, people who are interested in this outcome can do. And uh, that's going to be for our members. So become a member. Go to the dsrnetwork.com, click on membership. It's five bucks a month. It's going to be helpful now as we go into the election. And if you think this is a big election, wait till 2024. So we've got a lot to do We hope you will join us for it as a member. For those of you who are members, stand by. We'll be right back.